Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week, I'm bringing you excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order your books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week, I'll be discussing Anderson's seventh feature, Inherent Vice, with guests Tom Knobloch, Peter Moran, and Chad Perman. All book excerpts are used with permission of Columbia University Press. From the moment of its announcement, Inherent Vice proved a buzzworthy prospect. Not only is Paul Thomas Anderson's first classically faithful literary adaptation, as opposed to the fast and loose fidelity to source material of There Will Be Blood, but also as the first authorized adaptation of a work by literary titan and famed recluse Thomas Pynchon. Given the film's initially dismal reception, however, it may have struck some viewers and critics that this ostensibly unadaptable author should have stayed that way. It's the tail end of the psychedelic 60s, and paranoia is running the day. If it isn't Charlie Manson, it's the LAPD or the FBI or the mysterious body of something called the Golden Fang. So what's all this now? Everything's gone from groovy to where you at, man, suggesting a high level of fear or discomfort with the way things are headed. <coughs> this is Doc Sportello. He's a private investigator. Whoa. Are you all right? Am I? Are you? And like a peculiar planet in today's horoscope, in through the door walks Doc's ex-old lady Shasta and those five little words. I need your help, Doc. It's too bad that fear should be running sunny Southern California as in days of old, like the Watts riots or the Hollywood blacklist. Look at the greedy little hippie. 
but every once in a while, a hero like Doc Sportello shows up to help salvage his generation and guide it back to more merciful shores. Is that a swastika on that man's face? No, it isn't. That's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well. Maybe you'll just want to see the movie, Inherent Vice. Coherently detailing the plot of Inherent Vice is as impossible as it is unnecessary. The central mystery is intentionally impenetrable and anticlimactic, leaving the film best enjoyed as a mood piece. Far more significant than the intricacies of this comically Byzantine noir are the emotions undergirding it. To wit, in 1970, perpetually stoned detective Doc Sportello, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is living in a fictional L.A. neighborhood, Gordita Beach, where he is approached by his ex-girlfriend Shasta Faye Hepworth, played by Catherine Waterston. Shasta hopes that Doc might help track down her married lover, real estate mogul Mickey Wolfman, played by Eric Roberts, whom she suspects has been forcibly institutionalized by nefarious parties. Soon after, Doc is enlisted by a reformed heroin addict, Hope Harlingen, played by Jenna Malone, to find her husband, Coy, played by Owen Wilson, whose purported lethal overdose Hope is unable to accept. These two threads are soon entangled in an expansive conspiracy engineered by an entity known as the Golden Fang, a term that refers variously to a schooner used for offshore brainwashing of suspected dissidents, an Indo-Chinese heroin cartel, a syndicate of dentists, and, by the end, potentially the full mechanism of global capitalism as violently upheld by the CIA. The case of Mickey's disappearance is solved when Doc finds him at a private psychiatric hospital undergoing treatment that seems more like reprogramming. Now aware of a more irreconcilable web of wickedness, though, Doc decides to pour his efforts into returning Coy, seemingly under the Golden Fang's control after having become a CIA asset in exchange for help kicking heroin, to his wife and young daughter. Enlisting the aid of his longtime nemesis, LAPD detective Christian Bigfoot Bjornsson, played by Josh Brolin, Doc follows a lead to the office of a loan shark and apparent Golden Fang enforcer, Adrian Prussia, played by Peter McRobbie. Prussia takes Doc captive and attempts to execute him, but Doc gets the upper hand and shoots Prussia, escaping with the help of Bigfoot, who is revealed to have manipulated Doc into completing a task that he himself was incapable of, killing Prussia as revenge for the murder of Bigfoot's squad partner. As the final stroke in his betrayal, Bigfoot plants several pounds of heroin in Doc's car in hopes of neutralizing the bothersome hippie, but Doc is able to use the drugs stolen from the Golden Fang as leverage to negotiate Coy's release. After reuniting the Harlingen family, Doc rides into a hazy future with Shasta by his side, even as the tempestuous lovers repeatedly assert that they are not back together. Quote, there are of course two ways to experience inherent vice, Wesley Morris wrote in his review. Quote, with the brain on or the brain off. Both work. End quote. However, the presumption that either mode worked, let alone that both might, proved a dicey proposition for both critics and audiences. Inherent Vice grossed less than $15 million against a reported budget of $20 million, the worst return on investment for any Anderson film save Hard Eight. Critical responses were again divided, deepening an apparent frustration among some that Anderson continued retreating into esoterica rather than fulfilling There Will Be Blood's promise of populist prestige. Quote, Anderson seems to have lost all real pleasure in filmmaking, wrote Dave Callahan, while Kyle Smith labeled Inherent Vice, quote, easily the worst of his movies, end quote. Others were less frustrated than baffled by a nebulous plot, quote, ultimately pointless, Richard Lawson noted, though, quote, I realize that's kind of the point, end quote and a tone that's, quote, Altman-esque one minute, Austin Powers-esque the next, end quote, according to Stephen Ray. 
Admiring critics tended to choose the latter of Morris's viewing modes, appreciating the story as a collection of moods and moments rather than attempting to unify the elements. Quote, this is a movie Anderson wants you to inhale rather than watch, wrote Mark Kermode, while Alison Wilmore advised, quote, you have to let yourself sink into inherent vice. It's shaggy, eccentric, and sometimes hilarious, but it has a tender heart, end quote. In a mixed review, Katie Kilkenny argued that, quote, there's still a lot to admire in the sheer, uninhibited folly of the whole thing, the gall to get groovy while the Oscar watches are on high alert, end quote. Indeed, Inherent Vice made little impact during awards season, though the Academy did nominate Anderson's adapted screenplay and Mark Bridges' costumes. The film's sole win from a major awards body came from the Independent Spirit Awards, with Inherent Vice winning for Best Ensemble Cast, an award named, appropriately enough, for Robert Altman. What it makes me think about is probably what makes me so excited about it and what brings me back to it, because when it comes to issues of culture and politics, I'm always struggling with the idea that people say, you know, things are getting bad. They're sort of like unprecedentedly bad. We're past the point of no return in a way that we weren't a decade or two or three ago. And I always find that difficult to wrap my mind around, right? Because it's hard to compare the past in reference to my sentimental reaction to it or relationship with it as well as the sentimentality of anyone else who lived through or is talking about it. And then also it's sort of people with agendas about history. And so, I don't know, like I think the, the boring take on Inherent Vice would be that it makes me think about Donald Trump or something like that, right? But it is also interesting because it's a movie that resonates with me differently in our Make America Great Again uh, culture war, which seems to be going on forever. And like the movie is totally rooted in this romanticized past that people want to manifest however they can. And I think the, I think about the movies as well, just in the sense that like, even if you could manifest some phantom of it, right? It doesn't mean you're back together. It's gone, right? It's gone, baby, as, uh, as Bigfoot says. And so I, I'm always sort of thinking about that. And also I, I love though that it's not like the movie is demonizing that. I think everybody has that sort of uh, compulsion to think about the past, to want some element of it to come back to us. And I, I, so it's something where I'm always sort of wondering about that, that innocent, uncorrupted time and feeling that I think is maybe our, you know, it's cliche probably to say it's our inherent vice, but to always sort of have that as our comparison point with what we're living through now. And so it's sort of what I, what I love about the movie is some combination of that, but then also how the present, and I think the present as just sort of like whatever isn't the past, whatever you're living through can just feel like this absurdity which is layer and layer and layer of both indecipherable corruption, but then also like that corruption can be funny because it's so absurd. And that, I don't know, like I think, I think when, in 2014, I don't know if I totally had intellectualized what I was responding to in the movie. Whereas now, when like if this movie came out in 2023, I imagine people are more receptive and ready to sort of watch a movie that's all about the completely absurd present and how crazy it's all getting and how you can't find the bottom of all of the corruption that's out there. But then also I'm like, man, maybe is that my romanticization of 2014? Is 2014 my Shasta now in this case? So again, it's just sort of like all of that, those ideas and just the feeling of it. And as the movie gets older, maybe my romanticized version of watching it in theaters. I think I saw it three times because I loved it so much. So I don't know. What I, what I think about and what I feel is really what I go back to more so than like, I'm not going to try to explain the plot to you. That... The movie feels like a residual high. Like they all had this like beautiful moment, uh, you know, a little bit ago. They were all having a good time. And, you know, 
Doc is still having an okay time. He's not totally grimly depressed like a lot of these noir <laughs> noir guys are. Um, he seems to still have friends that want to see him and a social network. He runs into people on the street that say hi to him. <laughs> He's buddies dash enemies with Bigfoot. Like people seem to genuinely like him and he seems to like his job more or less. Um, but the whole movie has this feeling of a residual high. Like this thing, this there's there's almost sort of like a beauty in the in the, in the um the 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 weed leaving your system and sort of like having that um sunset feeling um and in that way like per perfect subject material for a movie about saying goodbye to the hippie era right across the nearly two and a half hour sprawl of inherent vice coy harlingen surf rock saxophonist and heroin addict turned cia asset appears in two centerpiece scenes in the first soon after doc has been hired by coy's wife hope to investigate his whereabouts Koi emerges on a fog-cloaked pier to ask that Doc keep an eye on Hope and their daughter Amethyst, and provides a minor clue as to the significance of the words Golden Fang. In the second, Doc finds Koi at a house party, where the anxious and paranoid Koi bemoans his self-imposed alienation from his family and urges Doc to find Shasta before she is enmeshed in the same morass that he is. In both cases, Koi's appearance is contained within one sustained shot. In the first, he enters the frame to join Doc, they speak for approximately two and a half minutes, and then Koi exits again. In the second, Doc enters the frame to join Koi, they speak for approximately four and a half minutes, and then Koi exits, leaving Doc alone. Neither of Koi's scenes is particularly dense with plot detail, but viewers may nevertheless find themselves struggling to grasp precisely what has been discussed by the time he has left the screen. These two encounters slip through one's fingers like a cloud of pot smoke. It's not simply the fact that these scenes constitute two disparate points in the vast constellation of incident and intrigue that comprises this paranoid odyssey. Rather, Anderson enhances the audience's hazy reception of his story through sabotaging, whether consciously or otherwise, several of the primary ways in which viewers receive and process stories, including, but by no means limited to, the counterintuitive task of processing dialogue delivered within relatively static shots of extended duration. With Inherent Vice, Anderson makes his most intricate and effective attempt at a goal that has spanned virtually his entire career, engaging viewers in the act of receiving his stories by alienating them from the typically passive experience of viewing a mainstream narrative film. This is a movie that I watched and then I was like kind of befuddled by, I think like a lot of people were. And then I saw Robert, more Robert Altman movies in general, but The Long Goodbye, and then something just kind of like clicked into place uh and i watched it a couple times uh when, back when i lived in chicago which is going to be relevant i think in like a minute uh i watched it a couple times and in and, and, and sort of the feel of stepping into doc's brain you go here because that's where doc would go <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean it's the straightest line to get there but we're gonna get there right um and watching in chicago it was a little bit of like disconnect where i was like what like, I didn't totally understand, like, some of the counterculture stuff as well at the time. Um, and uh, now I think the years have been, uh, like, more... Fo We've had more years focused on, like, the end of the 60s, uh, the hippie era, going into the 70s, more into, like, uh, Reagan as, as president, the Manson murders, um, you know, um, deaths at concerts, <laughs> um, the promise of the hippie generation kind of slipping away. And... Uh, as time has gone on and my education has gone on, and also I moved to Southern California in 2017, uh, my the context in which I understand this movie uh, kind of grew. 
and uh, primarily um, sort of how Southern California has every single decade since it's existed tried to reckon with the fact that it has this this hippie past, this beatnik past uh, of um, young people trying to find a way out of the, the culture um, uh, up against the raging gentrification machine that is also Southern California. Uh, and how every generation of person in, in California has an idea of when things went wrong or went south in quotes. Um, when the na this neighborhood, like, man, it just started getting so swanky and like, oh, man, you, you can't even get a beer in this neighborhood for less than nine dollars. Like living in a town that's very much like constantly struggling with that identity landed me in a very different place with an errant vice and a place that I think the context became much richer. We'll be right back after this quick break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Amid anecdotal accounts of audience walkouts during the initial theatrical release of Inherent Vice, Steve Rose published a column in The Guardian in February 2015 that analyzed what factors might have contributed to making Anderson's seventh film, quote, this season's mustn't-see experience, end quote. Viewers, Rose suggested, were likely lured in by Anderson's reputation as a populist auteur, a trailer suggesting a light and comic tone, and strong reviews from critics who may be inured to a conventional film structure. Quote, unlike your average multiplex punter on a Friday night, they crave something more challenging, end quote, an echo of the claims made after critics and audiences were divided on Punch Drunk Love. With these tripartite expectations in mind, Rose reasoned, viewers were likely shocked by what turned out to be an odd and often incomprehensible film. Quote, for most viewers, he concluded, quote, the minimum requirement of a story is that it makes sense. Stories are supposed to create order out of the chaos of reality, aren't they? Inherent vice is more the other way around. End quote. Indeed it is, and thus it's hard to fault any viewer who struggled to find pleasure in the film. Yet it's also worth considering that Anderson may have intentionally made the plot difficult to comprehend in order to more effectively convey his protagonist's addled perspective. Doc Sportello mounts a complex investigation while consistently under the influence of marijuana, a drug known to impair the user's ability to focus and process information. By doing all he could to communicate Doc's compromised perception, including limiting the viewer's perception of the film's milieu and creating an unusual density of visual information, Anderson risked alienating his viewers in order, paradoxically, to generate greater empathy with his perspective character. Admire and respect the hell out of the uh, 
the balls he had to put that movie out and uh and also to bill it as something you know and kind of hype up that it was going to be this totally different kind of movie and um and then just kind of pulls the rug out from under you and to to do that and just listen and follow your own artistic sensibilities and trust that you you've hit on something here that's going to be worth something to people to get it uh, and also that enough people are going to work hard enough to get it and uh and the immense the immensity of the payoff when you finally get on the level that it's on um again even without fully comprehending the plot i, I just think it's like a magic trick uh I, i'm not really sure uh, without analyzing it at, at some of the levels you guys have of, of how 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 it works the way it does and and why it just finally clicks in um and so yeah i'm, I'm just really happy it exists well so in, in that note uh i guess when we think about sort of like cultural problems and the the, the relationship that we have with culture i think today we always want there to be a villain and I think we want there to be like an easy problem that we can solve to right the ship. And I love that the movie, when you watch that, you're kind of trying to figure that out as well. You're sort of trying to say, okay, all these dots, they connect somehow. Somehow when we get to the end, there's going to be some bad guy. Or when we get to sort of like Puck Beaverton is introduced as a concept early in the movie. Maybe somehow that's going to be the way where he can solve a problem. Maybe Doc can't get Shasta back, but he can take down some big centralized power. But that's really not what the movie is. And I think uh, it's, it's funny to me because the world is like that as well. We can sort of have our big issue that we think we're going to attack, that we think we're going to legislate, and then that will turn things around, that will right the ship. But it really never is that way. And at the same time, I think I'm just, again, every year, I'm sort of like looking at this, this people who are causing all this corruption, the people who are the root of all these problems, and somehow they can be both terrifying and really outwardly pathetic and ridiculous enough to be kind of laughable. And th that corruption can both sort of be ruining all of our society and the planet and this, you know, past that we romanticize and also feel like a naked gun movie. It's just not something that I'm really seeing in a whole lot of culture. Uh, like the naked gun, for example, a naked gun too tries to get into politics a little bit. It doesn't really hit that hard, right? It's not really capable of having that register. Whereas inherent vice is, which I think is a really special quality and to do it well, is not something I've really seen before or again. Uh, like, so again, sorry, I don't want to bring this back to Trump, but like I think about Rudy Giuliani with hair dye dripping down his face as he's farting in the mics and he's trying to steal a presidential election from the, the Four Seasons total landscaping because they booked the wrong Four Seasons. And like, that's hilarious. And there's all these layers of stupidity there. But at the same time, these, these are the people who do somehow stumble their way into power. And I think in Inherent Vice, I'm able to sort of think about that and reflect on that, and that captures what that feeling really is like instead of trying to make it the big scary bad guy. You get little snippets of that, but I love that it's not like the carefully calculated evil of uh, 1984. It's not the terrifying organization with Parallax View. It's not the sophistication of Network. It's really like we're living through evil airplane is the register that that movie makes me think of. And maybe that's what America's always been. Maybe it's always been evil airplane, and it took Paul Thomas Anderson and Thomas Pynchon to get me there. To, to realize that. Um, and the the piece that really clicked with me, um, especially once I sort of mapped, I was like, okay, Gordita Beach is a fake place, but it's mapped basically on Manhattan Beach. It's where Pynchon lived for a couple of years. Um, it's a LA County beach town. They still claim they're very chill and laid back, but it's, the, it's like every other part of Southern California, right? Like um, 
If it, if people, if if uh, white people with money want to live there, white people with money want to live there, right? Rich people move in everywhere and, and gentrify it, right? Um, and uh, once you've spent a little bit of like a, a little bit, had a little bit more exposure to like some of the old timers here in San Diego who have seen the place change, or in Southern California in general, and seen the place change. My brother lives in LA, so I spent a bunch of time there. You kind of see this thing that Doc is going through, just. A, a, a previous iteration of that wave, right? Um, the fact that they keep referring to, I gotta get back to the beach, I gotta get back to the beach is, is no no mistake for a movie like this, right? Like, the movie is entirely about how you can't go home again, and then it has a very sweet moment about how Koi can go home again, <laughs> right in the, right nestled in the end, right? Like, you, I, I personally think it's very fascinating and chewy that at the end of the movie, you've got Doc realizing that he's never getting, he's he, he's never getting Shasta back. He's never getting the old beach life back, uh, where it sounds like he mostly just, like, smoked pot and hung out. Um, he's never getting that lifestyle back. Shasta's never coming back to him in that, in that way. Um, you, and then you've got the scene where Bigfoot kicks down his door, which is fucking hilarious, right? on my door come on after a long and busy day of civil rights violations i found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in just to check and see the current state of affairs my old stomping grounds seeing as your effort to keep lines of communication had been limited to say the least well i've been busy Trying to figure out which side of the zigzag paper is the sticky sign. Give it to me. Listen, I'm sorry, sorry about last night. You? Why, Why should you be sorry? Weird.
Bigfoot comes in, smokes the joint, and you're like, oh, Bigfoot's trying to reconnect with where he came from, too. That's, you know, it all it all ties in together. And then Bigfoot has essentially like a, a comically outsized, desperate reaction to trying to go back home. <laughs> he eats an entire plate of weed, which I think was confounding for a lot of people um, that I, I, I guess maybe didn't check in with the movie tone wise when Martin Short was doing <laughs> there's an entire sequence in the middle about Martin Short doing very good blow just having sex with every woman that he possibly can through his organization like at that point weren't you kind of picking up that this movie's a little silly Bigfoot can't go home either uh the final shot is of Doc having like a wry little smile and recognition of like <laughs> like oh fuck man like I I'm not getting back the thing that I wanted here and it's a melancholy it's a melancholy movie that also has a good sense of humor about itself, um, which I think is why ultimately it feels kind of hopeful. Like the coy, the coy thing is obviously hopeful, right? You get the sense that maybe he actually did kick junk and uh, maybe I forget the name of his wife, maybe also did kick junk. The baby seems healthy. Like, um, you know, you're we're they seem to be on a good track. I'm going to take that as a win. Just to, just not dig deeper on that. But um, I don't know where this leaves Doc at the end. And it does leave in, in that sort of thing where like, as long as he stays here, as long as he keeps traveling the same circles, uh, he keeps making the same sort of mistakes, he's he's probably going to end up in the same place. And in a way, that sense of stasis is, is home, right? That chaotic stasis is home for him. Um. Yeah, what... what really struck me in 2023 was how much because of my uh somewhat obsessive rewatching of it um during 2020 and 2021 uh i now bizarrely associate it as like a pandemic movie um which has gotten a really weird thing because it has obviously nothing to do with that it was released not there but i just my own personal memory of it is um just spending a lot of time with that movie during some some pretty dark days on earth and uh really just joy enjoying the escape and the uh you know be being in a totally different um everything uh and being in this world that i was still struggling to understand and gave my brain something to do but uh um it's really yeah the, the strongest sense memory i have of it now is just like i'm really glad that film exists um i, I really feel silly that uh it took me so long to warm up to it um but i i definitely think there's a value in appreciating um art through <laughs> taking more than a few viewings to try and, and and figure out what's going on and what you what you personally make of it um and i think through you know even my conversation with with travis back then um i learned a lot about what i actually felt about it and it was it was really helpful to be able to articulate that so I, i'm just more appreciative of what it's done in my life i don't know if that's what you're, you're looking for on this sure. um I, i've had a journey with it and uh and, and those are my favorite films i think uh, the ones that you can take those kind of journeys and i think even watching it again recently, um, where it had been at least more than a year. And uh, it's just like, oh, yeah, felt like a, a mix of an old friend and uh, a good reminder of a bad period. That was a good during that bad period. Yeah. All right. So if we're if we think of America as evil airplane and we think of like this, this theory of America that's coming out, I then think about uh, Cornell West has talked about how he sees there's two schools of American literary tradition. Either you're in the Emersonian or the Melvillian. So Emerson's all about how can we redeem America's soul. Melville says, I'm not so sure America has one to begin with. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson 
I think he leans more toward the Emersonian, but maybe he oscillates sort of back and forth between those. And I think uh, Thomas Pynchon maybe does as well. Maybe it just depends on whether they're, in a, they're having a good day or a bad day. Like, There Will Be Blood, for example, probably as close as anyone's going to come to just sort of like that essence of Moby Dick and that nihilistic feeling where Daniel Plainview sees nothing worth liking in people. But then uh, Inherent Vice isn't in that register, even though I think it gives you some of the intellectual reasons why you might give up on America's soul. It does have a lot of soul. And it has this idea of redemption in it. You know, if uh, if Daniel Plainview sees nothing worth liking in people, Sportello sees something to like in just about everybody. And I think when we when I try to sort of see what to do with that, like how, how does that compare to this idea of America? Are we seeing an America past redemption? Yes, I think somehow we are. We are seeing kind of a soulless America but Anderson has found this way to sort of see redemption and to see a soul in the people who make it up and what they do and the choices that they make. And that's so moving. And there's something uh, heartfelt in there that's so different from, uh, you know, there will be blood. And I think for the most part, Anderson seems to be getting more sentimental as he gets older. And I see that come through here where Sportello, you know, he's not America's savior. He's also not subsumed by the corruption, which itself is a kind of victory, right? And, you know... He's not even he's not Enrico Palazzo saving the queen, but at the same time, he does have a soul. He's maybe lost, and he's trying to figure it all out, but he'll try to stop little kid blues. He'll try to be his brother's keeper. And that might be enough victory, ultimately, to make it all worthwhile. And so ultimately, you know, it makes me feel good in some way. I don't feel good about America exactly, but to feel good about humanity in this movie that's just endless corruption and like endless sort of like you know, swamps you can get stuck in. Every door you go in, there's some kind of evil, nefarious person. But to have one good core at the middle of it, I think that's really amazing. And it makes me feel good. And it makes me want to go back to it. I'm not sure when I've ever been more excited for a movie than I was for Inherent Vice. Not only was it a new PTA movie, it was PTA adapting Pinchon. The possibilities felt limitless and delightful. Like so many people, I felt a bit let down by the end result this woozy and disorienting mass of plot and story without clear momentum or resolution. But the film has grown and grown and grown for me to the point that there are some days when it feels like it could be my favorite of his movies. Yes, it can be an alienating watch, but Anderson is too smart and savvy to ever truly push the viewer away. He anchors the story in the emotions, the love and the terror that is at the heart of this labyrinth of a plot. The line on Thomas Pinchon is tended to be that he's unadaptable, and if PTA proved that wrong, it also feels like this may well be a once-in-a-lifetime object, the cinematic pinch-on. We're lucky to have gotten it, and beware anyone who tells you otherwise. <laughs>